This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Hi, and welcome to another edition of Lens Me Your Ears, the podcast that takes a look at new movies and theaters and then connects them to a bigger body of work in history past. And hopefully you'll see something new and maybe be inspired to check out some older titles along the way. My name is Stephen Cook, and I'm an arts writer here in Halifax. My name is Karsten Knox, and I am a film writer. I got a blog. It's called Flaw in the Iris. You can find it at halifaxbloggers.ca. And this weekend, we saw the new Steven Soderbergh feature, Shot on the Handy Little iPhone, and it's called Unsane, a stalker drama with some really cool suspense moments and some moments that maybe could have used a little more fleshing out. But uh, I think overall we enjoyed it, and we'll talk about it more in just a bit. So here we are again, Stephen. So good to sit opposite you once again in the booth at CKDU to talk about movies on Lends Me Your Ears. And uh, I'm actually pretty excited about this episode. Uh, Not that I'm not excited about other episodes we do, but I feel like uh, this is a really meaty subject. The work of Steven Soderbergh, the American filmmaker who constantly challenges himself to do different things, uh, has certain stuff he really likes to do. He certainly is a genre fan. He likes to mess with genre. but uh, And he likes to do weird independent stuff that really pushes the technology. He's very interested in the form of film, I find, almost to a fault. But, uh, you know, he's very reliably interesting. I am always kind of into a Steven Soderbergh film. It's There's always something to be seen in his in his work. Yeah, I can't say there are any films of his that I didn't enjoy on on one level or another. The, the, there are a few that are, are misfires, and we'll probably talk about some of those because <laughs> he's been very, very uh, prolific over the course of his uh, career since his big feature debut with Sex, Lies, and Videotape back in the late 80s. Uh, and, uh, and he's just, you know, he, he's, he's just taken one left turn after another. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I really admire that uh, that energy that he has. He is constantly working and, and he's one of these guys who does not only does he direct, but he writes, he uh, produces, he likes to shoot his own films under a pseudonym. Uh, there's even, you know, suggestions that he edits a lot of his own films. Like he is doing, he's a one-man filmmaker in a way that a lot of filmmakers aren't, even though, you know, he's, he's clearly, and, he, and, he, he's, and he's an Academy Award, uh, you know, a winning filmmaker, so he has that on his shelf as well like he is he can play with the big boys he certainly appear to the the uh the cohen's um you know the 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 genre the the group of of filmmakers who came of age in the late 80s and 90s in the independent i mean uh, sex lies and videotape kicked off the american independent movement movement of the 1990s so he's got that to take credit for as well uh i am more a fan of i guess some of his really solid genre films, um, maybe a little less so of his experiments, but I'm always interested in them. I think I think that the first film we're going to talk about, the new one of his that has just come out, uh, is sort of straddles that uh, that line. I think it's it is a genre experiment. There is no way around the fact that he shot it on a, on a cell phone, and that informs the whole feel of the film. The the format. There's the two lines on the side of the screen. <laughs> there's a strange. I'm not exactly sure what that format is. The, uh, uh, that ratio on the screen, but it's a little different. It's a little claustrophobic, and uh, it it brings with it a certain feel that you can't get away from as an audience member. And I really I really like that. I I like that his his choice of how to shoot the film really defines how it feels. Yeah, um, that does that does work for later in the film where our main character uh, Claire Foy's Sawyer Valentini, who's the, the main character, is 
pretty much in every scene that we see over the course of the film, um, she is confined in a certain way that uh, a wider frame probably wouldn't do those scenes justice. I, I don't know if it's close to the original kind of European format of uh, 1.66 to 1, which was kind of a little wider than the TV frame, but not a whole lot wider. And mm-hmm. I, th- I think it's kind of in that ballpark. Yeah, it's not a square. No. Like, it's not no. quite as tight uh, as some I've seen, but it's it's certainly not filling. It's not the usual widescreen that we're used to. Yeah, I, I, I don't know if, that, if that's just what you get when you shoot with whatever iPhone that he used. I don't know if it was an iPhone 8. Yeah, I don't actually know either for sure. The camera of choice. And I'm guessing that the the use of that phone also meant that they could use multiple phones for each scene and i'm uh, you know i'm guessing that this was actually made fairly quickly uh given yeah. the lightweight um equipment and lack of large crew that they had to deal with here yeah i gather they made it almost in secret uh they and they did it with very few uh resources he shot it with a skeleton crew and uh you know much of the film takes place in a single location which i'm sure helps um but uh, yeah it's a fascinating film i mean basically i like I really like the beginning, the first half of it. The second half, less so. I feel like it takes too long to wrap up. Uh, and I feel like the power of the film, the allegorical power especially, is in that first half when we have this this woman who is has moved to a new town. She's originally from Boston. She's a banker, and she's trying to deal with being in this new place, and she has some emotional problems. So she goes to see a therapist, a psychologist who uh, you know takes her, basically she, she admits to some suicidal depressive thoughts, and all of a sudden she discovers that she has been against her will. Uh, she is stuck in this facility uh, for 24 hours for observation, uh, which is extended when she gets frustrated and lashes out, <laughs> which, you know, any one of us would do if we found ourselves in the same situation. And uh, and then she believes that there is an orderly on the staff who is her stalker. And we discovered the reason she moved to this area in Pennsylvania somewhere is because and away from Boston is to get away from a man who uh, who wouldn't leave her alone. And, uh, you know, and then then she has to deal with him in a way that uh, I think says a lot. I mean, I think this film has that is potent enough and smart enough to have some things to say about, you know, women just in general in real in their lives having to deal with men who won't leave them alone. And I but at the same time, it it allows for some doubt as to what her actual perception is and whether or not she is mentally ill and whether she is a unreliable narrator. Uh, and I love all that uh, stuff. At a certain point, the film decides what's real and what's not and lets us in on it. And after that, it becomes a different kind of film, I think. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting that the the first half is the more interesting half of the film as we get to know uh, Sawyer and her predicament and you sort of feel for her, but at the same time you get a little frustrated with her you know, behavior where she acts, she seems to be an intelligent woman, but she sometimes lets her instincts get the better of her. And uh, like you say, she does lash out and, and um, because she's been pull- put in a vulnerable position that she's traveled halfway across the country to get away from um, after being reduced to a nervous wreck by uh, an obsessive man uh and yes and then the second half of the film once we kind of know what's going on and and how the strings are being pulled and so on uh then it sort of becomes a little more conventional which is not sort of what you expect you expect it to get weirder as yeah as things move along um you know which is what usually happens in a in a more experimental title but here it actually gets it gets a little more conventional and it's fine because uh claire foy is great as sawyer and uh as as the man who uh, she believes to be her tormentor, um, 
Joshua Leonard is is pretty creepy. Yeah. He is. Yeah, he looks like uh, kind of like a junior John Goodman. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I think he was in. I read somewhere that he was in Blair Witch. He's not an actor that is I'm super familiar with, but uh, yeah, it uh, this kind of a film clearly, I guess maybe he was chosen because he's this kind of he's comfortable in this kind of a uh, this kind of filmmaking, this kind of style. Uh, yeah, he's fine. Um, I think she's the sh- she's the standout. I mean, the camera is on her most of the time, and. Uh, uh, yeah, and I've I've liked her since I've seen her. I guess I was introduced to her from watching uh, The Crown on uh, on Netflix, where she plays Queen Elizabeth. Uh, I don't think she quite entirely loses her Eng- English accent here. It's, it's a bit Boston, but it's also a little bit mid Atlantic. <laughs> uh, but it's not. It's not. That's that's just nitpicking. I, I wouldn't say that that's a distraction from her performance, which I think is is very good. Like her, she needs to have her emotions right on the surface, which she very much does in this. Yeah, and and. You know, I don't know that Soderbergh's done a flat-out thriller like this. I mean, I, I think about, uh, you know, obviously we all did our, we did our own cramming for this episode, and I went back to his early um, expressionistic, uh, you know, psychological drama Kafka, which does have elements of that uh, mm-hmm. kind of filmmaking, but um, but you don't feel the same kind of panic for, for Jeremy Irons as a kind of fictionalized version of Franz Kafka, as you do here for uh, for Sawyer. I mean, you, you get the sense, very your very real sense, very quickly that her life is in danger, and but but you don't know what from where, what corner it's going to come from, whether it's from the uh, psychotic woman in the bed next to her, um, you know, or from this orderly that she encounters who uh, just sets her sets her right off um, with a flashback to the man who made her life miserable back in Boston. So. Uh, you know, there's 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 definitely danger coming from every angle, and there there is that kind of one flow of the cuckoo's nest, institutionalized insanity uh, kind of uh, angle that um, I I think we both felt that more could have been done with that aspect of it than than getting into kind of a more traditional stalker. Um, thriller territory because we've seen enough films yeah. on those lines over the years yeah and i think i mean soderbergh can do all of this and he does it well he's very confident a filmmaker and it, i mean i was interested right to the end to see how it would turn out but but i did feel like it loses something when we know for sure one way or the other whether she is she is just is she's paranoid is she seeing is she delusional or not and uh and i think he could have strung that along a little longer um yeah i think the film this reminded me of from his work it reminded me a little bit of side effects uh given and the underneath both of whom have female leads and they're both kind of genre films um and you know and i i think I think those are the two that I probably is most like, but this one has a tension and a suspense that maybe is all to itself. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's worth seeing. Uh, I don't think it's one of his best, but again, you know, I, I, I appreciate that he is willing to experiment and try stuff that he hasn't done before, especially working with different technology. Well, it is interesting that he's making basically a commercial type film, but using unconventional experimental methods to do it mm-hmm. using doing using the, the cheapest technology possibly uh available uh and um you know he, he's often ahead of the curve in that regard i understand that uh for example his che guevara um sort of uh duology <laughs> diptych <laughs> diptych there we go um <laughs> the, the second film was shot using some brand new cameras some some lightweight uh sony red digital cameras okay. that were and he was i guess one of the first people to use those uh for that particular film and of course they suited uh the material perfectly because of the way he wanted to shoot it with a documentary gorilla if you will st- style <laughs> nicely um, done yeah, yes sir that, that uh that that perfectly suited the material and uh you know and 
adapted it to a, to a very good look for that film. Um, you know, here the, the picture is a little grainy. The colors are a little odd and a little off, the, just as they would be from a, a phone camera yeah. film. But, but uh, you know, over, you know, after you know, going in knowing how it was made, uh, eventually I didn't think you weren't thinking about that no, constantly. So it's, I wasn't. It's, it, it's not self-conscious about it. No, and uh, I think that's, that speaks to his his quality and his thoughtfulness as a filmmaker. I mean, the only other film I can think of off the top of my head that I really liked that I've seen shot uh, with iPhones is Tangerine, Sean Baker's film. And it had a similar kind of feel to it, that sort of fisheye lens kind of quality where the edges of the frame are all curling and around the, the movement of the camera. Uh, and it does create a certain amount of claustrophobia, even when you're outside in exterior shots. Uh, and th- you know what else I, I've really recognized having watched a bunch of Soderbergh's together now in a, you know, cramming, as you say, for this episode, is how much he likes to use uh, color schemes like um, within w- like within a shot, just, uh, and I'm talking about like, uh, um, uh, like f- filters. Like, and I'm sure he sure. does this in post-production. Like, I rewatched uh, Aaron Brockovich the other night, and half of the film, which, of course, shot in a desert climate, is very sandy, very yellow, very orangey. And then the nights, he uses a blue uh, uh, filter, and all of a sudden, everything's very blue. And, of course, uh, the film he made right after that same year, I think it was 2000, he made Aaron Brockovich. He also made Traffic. I mean, that was an incredible year for two amazing films that both did very well at the box office and were critically acclaimed that he made with those kinds of, with that kind of thing in mind. In Traffic, of course, he had like four different parts of the story and he color coded each of them. Yes. So you knew where you were when he cut between them. And, and uh, you know, and he's been doing that early on. You look at, uh, I believe uh, was it his second feature, King of the Hill, uh, which has that warm, woodsy, you know, lived-in 1930s look. Yeah, and uh, it's you know it's very warm and and uh, you know a lot of low-key lighting and and uh, you know it, it you just feel like you're just plunged into that world of yeah. depression era. Um, now I'm trying to remember what city it was. It was <laughs> it was shot in, but... Uh, uh, yeah, I don't know either. It, it felt a little... It didn't feel distinct. Like it was... Oh, it was in Missouri somewhere. Oh, okay. Because I remember one of the kids said Missouri, but uh, That's right, I'm not sure where. Yes, yeah, because the father was going all over Kansas yeah, and yeah, everywhere with his... Except he couldn't... He could go everywhere but where he lived because of his new job in the marketplace he was supposed to... Right. ...to serve in the... With his new traveling salesman gig. Yeah. It's funny, the Sean Baker comparison, because Baker, um, his most recent film was The Florida Project, and I feel like The Florida Project would be a nice double feature with King of the Hill, both of which examine poverty in the American context, one of which is set in the 30s in the Depression, and The Florida Project is present day. But they're very much very similar thematically you know they're set in hotels where people live because they can't afford to live anywhere else and it's told from the perspective of children uh, and it's very it's both playful but very sad as well because the kids you know they have so little control over their lives yeah and they do experience real tragedy too over yeah. the course of of the storyline certainly um it's 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 a little odd in king of the hill seeing uh a character played by spalding gray uh you know, commit suicide. Basically, I, yeah, I thought so too. Yeah, um, I felt really creeped out by that when I watched it. But, but I mean, you I know. mean, that's just weird foreshadowing. I guess. Yeah, uh, yeah, art reflecting life. You know, and they clearly had a, a, a relationship because Soderbergh later made a film with Spalding Gray. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, one of his monologues. Yeah. 
moving backwards in time a little bit, we started with Unsane, uh, the new Steven Soderbergh uh, thriller, this sort of psychodrama uh, stalker thriller that's uh, just uh, just out in theaters now and uh, shot on uh, shot on iPhones. Uh, his uh, previous uh, theatrical film is something, I guess, a little more conventional, and it just came out last year. So he, you know, it tells you how quickly he can turn a film around. Uh, I think Logan Lucky was kind of a a late year film that we touched on briefly when we were talking about heist movies. Um, but, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a quite a charming film and, and kind of maybe, uh, a little more straight up comedy than I expected when I saw this film. I, I didn't think it was going to be, I thought it was going to be maybe a little more serious, uh, maybe a little more on the action side of things, but it really is kind of this rural comedy film, maybe a, an homage to those kind of, uh, Backroads, uh, gangstery type pictures that Roger Corman made in the 1970s. It definitely has that kind of feel. Maybe a little more high concept, and certainly uh, a lot better cast with people like Channing Tatum, Daniel Craig, and Adam Driver among uh, among the stars of this film. Uh, as as they uh, pull off a heist at a uh, very popular uh, stock car racetrack uh, on their biggest weekend of the year, uh, and. Uh, there are moments of comedy that that are kind of played at a pretty high pitch, maybe um, maybe higher than you're used to seeing in, in the more standard Steven Soderbergh films, uh, uh, unless you've seen The Informant, which is is played more comedic than you'd expect as well. So uh-huh. I, I don't know if that's the tone that he's going for in some of these films lately, trying to bump up the the comedy aspect of it. But um, you know, there's also a very touching story at heart in this. Uh, in this film, uh, between uh, a dad played by Channing Tatum, Jimmy Logan, and his uh, his daughter, who's uh, a, a young girl beauty pageant contestant, um, Sadie, uh, winningly played by Sarah McKenzie, who has to uh, sing. Uh, well, actually, she was going to sing Rihanna. I yeah, think, that's uh, right. And then she tell. decides she decides to go with a cl- country classic. Go, goes with Country Roads by. Uh, by John Denver, continuing the thread of films featuring John Denver. Twenty seventeen was huge for John Denver. He was in a lot and, of uh, films. Yeah. I understand there's been at least one article written about the fact that I guess his catalog just became available on the market, or his publisher suddenly decided to. I don't know if they dropped the price or just made it available. But all of a sudden, there were several films featuring John Denver songs. But here it seems to be the most appropriate use of the music because, of course, they are in the the Carolinas. And um, or is it West Virginia? I think it's maybe West Virginia, uh, where the film takes place, and of course referenced in the song "Country Roads." And uh, you know, it, it is kind of played for laughs, especially when you get to Daniel Craig's character. The, yeah, uh, well, no one's. I mean, in, I remember the trailer saying and introducing Daniel Craig. Like, no one has seen him do this before—a broad yokel. Uh, but he is so funny in the uh, in the role. And uh, yeah, and he, it's just great. To, it's so refreshing to see him play that kind of a part. Um, but this was also Soderbergh's return to filmmaking after four years of taking a break. Now, uh, he, a break is probably a loose term, given that he shot and directed and shot a whole season of a television series, The Nick. Um, and he was also 
he also did he shot and edited and produced the sequel to Magic Mike called Magic Mike XXL. He was he actually shot, directed the first Magic Mike, um, which was also starring Channing Tatum and also had that southern com- comedic perspective to it. Uh, so I think yeah I think he's comfortable in this world and uh, and I think that uh, that you know he borrows a little bit maybe from the Cohen the, from the Cohen brothers here. It has that Cohen esque quality though isn't quite as I don't know, intellectually wacky as the Coens like like to be. That said, what I really enjoyed about Logan Lucky is that uh, the the twist, if there is a twist, is that the the brothers who have always seemed like bad luck, who have always nothing has ever worked out for them, wind up, you know, being very clever and turning everything around by enacting a airtight plan uh that uh that gets them anyway without giving too much away there's a lot of success with these people in this film in 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 a way that you would not expect and uh yeah it's it's a lot of fun logan lucky is on uh, netflix now and uh if you missed it in the cinemas i think it was actually out last august it didn't last very long in cinemas but uh, it's it's now available and uh and will i think uh i think people will appreciate it i i also compared it to it's more of a redneck oceans movie uh uh, because, <laughs> you know, given the heist element of it, and of course, Steven Soderbergh directed Oceans 11, 12, and 13, uh, which may be his most successful films, that franchise. Uh, incredibly popular. Oh, uh, yeah, I'd say. In fact, uh, the last time I looked at Netflix, I entered Steven Soderbergh's, not that their search engine is anything to write home about, but I think Oceans 11 was the only Soderbergh thing that came up. Yeah, I, that's right. Um, until uh, Logan Lucky appeared on the scene. But uh, but the, the, the cast does work really well together. Everybody seems to be having a good time, which is always, a, you know, always kind of a cliche. Oh, they look like they're really having a good time making this movie. But, um, you know, Daniel Craig seems more relaxed than I've ever seen him you know, since uh, maybe going back to Layer Cake, uh, playing this very over-the-top, uh, you know, safe cracker, Joe Bang, who's uh, kind of the, the expert who kind of guides them through this heist as they get underneath this racetrack and have to figure out the pneumatic tube system in order to divert <laughs> uh, the cash into their into their own pockets. And, and um, you know, there is, a, there is a fun kind of clockwork element to this like there is to any good heist film, but... but but I think the, uh, the the emphasis is really more on character mm-hmm. than on the mechanics of the actual heist itself, which is which is fine because we've seen enough movies like that that um, you've got to do something fresh with it, and, and he does. But the, yeah, making a comparison to the Coen Brothers is certainly uh, appropriate, I think. If you know, can, if you consider the similarities with something like, say, Raising Arizona, mm-hmm. which um, you know was one of their early uh, early hits, and 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 we talked about this before. Uh, a while back about how, you know, like when Steven Soderbergh arrived on the scene with Sex, Lies, and Videotape in 1989, uh, you know, that's the film that kind of kicked off the whole Sundance era of filmmaking, yeah. if you, if you yeah. want to call it that, for, for better or for worse in, in some people's minds. But but that that was the film that kind of, it, it, it kind of blew up at Sundance and, and also gave that festival its first big jolt of juice in a wider mainstream sense. And... Um, and so basically picking up from where the Coens had kind of germinated things with uh, with indie American filmmaking that could also be commercially successful uh, in, in the mid-1980s. And then he comes along a few years later with Sex, Lies, and Videotape, which, uh, which you know, thankfully has a little bit of, uh, I wouldn't say controversy, but because it, it's something a little racy, I suppose, that it, it had a little extra edge, uh, be an erotic, 
maybe not quite thriller isn't quite the word, but yeah. but it got people into the theaters to see it in a way that maybe an indie film hadn't really up you know for a long time at least. Yeah, uh, and it, it's it's actually not all that explicit. No, not at all. But uh, but it, you're right. It, it's it's what they talk about is actually very sexy. I mean they they talk about both their you know, uh, sexy stuff uh, that is positive, but also some neuroses and and obstacles to a happy, uh, you know, uh, sex life. And, uh, you know, it features a terrific performance from Andy McDowell, an actor who is constantly undervalued, I think. I, I was I love to see her back again in Magic Mike XXL, which she plays another great role. And I just was like, oh, that's so nice that she's working with with uh, Soderbergh again, um, but uh, but yeah, and and I rewatched I rewatched Sex Lies and Videotape, and I was so impressed with how it isn't dated. Like it still feels, and it's partly because of Soderbergh's confidence with storytelling. He did this on a shoestring budget, you can tell. But he he doesn't indulge in a lot of the sort of glossier aspects of filmmaking in the late '80s. I think the only thing that really dates it. Eh, the fashion's a little bit, but mostly it's <laughs> James, ja- James Spader's hair. hair yeah. <laughs> yeah, the sort of like the the mullet action going on and the feathering and the blonde. You know, he just he he was yeah. It's it's something to see him when I think about who he you know the way he is now in his in his popular television series. Uh, yeah, he is he's changed quite a lot over the years. But uh, anyway, they're all the actors are great, and it it really it, it clearly was uh, announcing a new talent on the stage, and then he went on. On to do like almost 10 years of films that almost nobody went to see uh, Kafka uh, King of the Hill and the underneath I think if I'm not forgetting anyone uh, and you've seen Kafka I haven't seen Kafka but we both watched King of the Hill uh, which I was so pleased how involved I was it was much warmer than some of Soderbergh's films have been um, yeah what, what did you think of it yeah it could be maybe because it was an adapted property I mean I, I you know, I think often he he tries to be a little more original in the material, or or pick something he can kind of put a spin on. Um, here, I don't think he has as much uh, wiggle room. It's based on a, a, a memoir by A. E. Hotchner, um, a writer uh, who talks about growing up in the Depression and and um, you know having a, a family where you know his father was on the road and his mother was in a sanitarium. So the the young boy. Um, who in this case, I think, what's what's his name in this film? Uh, I should remember this. But um, I guess Aaron, who I guess is A. E. Hotchner um, uh, in, uh, in young form, who either is fending for himself in this hotel, um, dealing with the forces that are trying to kick him out, uh, the, the, the management and the kind of slightly evil bellboy who's right. always With locking, bad, bad teeth yeah locking people out of their rooms and putting their possessions in the storage room in the basement um which becomes this treasure trove later in the film to, to good effect um but uh, i i think he's, he hews pretty close to the material i mean soderbergh obviously adapted the screenplay from the memoir by hodgner but um but doesn't uh, doesn't try to alter the tone too much it, the, there is a there is a very warm glow of nostalgia around this material um even while it deals with harsh things like like some of the illnesses that people had to deal with at that time um, when modern medicine was kind of on on the cusp and 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 also just the economic deprivation that people suffered uh, after the depression when their their savings ran out and, and everybody's kind of trying to fend for themselves um, so it, it does uh, achieve a nice balance there with that and um, and I think uh, Soderbergh's uh, big skill here is just keeping it moving like it you know it, the film, the film really goes at a good clip, um, mm-hmm. you know, with the, the pace of a child, I guess. You know, it has that kind of 
boyish energy about it. Yeah. And uh, everything feels like an adventure, you know, as he tries to, you know, keep the car from being possessed by the bank, repossessed by the bank, and he has to fend off this kind of dim-witted cop who tries to horn in on everybody's action in the yeah. neighborhood and so on. Yeah, you know, that car, the scene where he gets into the car and he tries to, to steer it and it goes down the hill, that is terrifying. I mean, that's a really well shot scene where I just, I was like, you know, I was on the edge of my seat watching that happen and being just like, yeah, yeah, it was it was really well done. There's a lot of moments like that. It's really well done. It's, it's almost like an odd, a nod to the Keystone Cops comedy of the era there's a lot of runaway car gags in those old silent comedies and it seems era appropriate to the era that the film takes place in and, and certainly Soderbergh is is a big fan of of uh, vintage comedy and then kind of maybe a certain amount of screwball humor which he kind of turns to his own devices and uh yeah this is a film uh, eventually Criterion uh put it out in the Criterion collection that might be the easiest way to find it these days um but it's cer- certainly one uh one worth looking up and uh you know, some also some great uh, supporting cast members. Uh, Karen Allen, uh, you know, of course, from Raiders of the Lost Ark and among other things, uh, is, is a real delight here as the very sympathetic uh, grade school teacher. Yes, yes, you know, she's wonderful. Uh, it's nice to see her uh, get a substantial part here. And uh, uh, Jerome Crabbe, uh, who I think is Dutch. I think he is too. Yeah, I know but, him um, mostly as a Bond villain from one of the Timothy right. Dalton films. Well, I, I first encountered him in the Paul Verhoeven thriller The Fourth Man, uh, which is kind of a Hitchcockian thriller with uh, with a lot more sexual explicitness in it. <laughs> um, and uh, I'm sure Verhoeven, or Verhoeven, I'm sure Soderbergh was a fan of that film as well. He also uh, includes Crabbe as a mysterious sculptor who seems to know what's going on in the underground in uh, Kafka. Okay. And uh, he, he's a he's a great presence in that film as well. And uh, and also Adrian Brody is the uh, the fixer kind of character who lives across the hall, can get anything at any price. And uh, well, it's Elizabeth McGovern uh, is a great actress uh, who is nice to see uh, turn up here in a, in a small role as well. So. Lots, lots to recommend in the film. It has nothing to do with the cartoon of the same name uh, <laughs> by, by Mike Judge. Um, I'm sure people get that confused all the time. But um, definitely one of those, you know, it's, a, it's sort of like a more dramatic version of a Christmas story, basically. It's told from the perspective of a, of a young child. It's, you know, in that case, it's like just America sandwiched between the, the Second World War and uh, and the prosperous 1950s. Here, of course, we're just after the the wall street crash and uh you know when nostalgia wasn't what it used to be um yeah i mentioned kafka earlier that was basically the first thing he did after sex lies and videotape uh once uh, sex lies and videotape was a hit you know and made for a fairly low amount of money uh, of course uh, that got hollywood interested and of course they just started coming up with the offers and um you know so he got to do his dream project which is an extremely expensive looking black and white uh, expressionist thriller shot in Prague with an amazing cast with Jeremy Irons as Franz Kafka and uh, you know, Alec Guinness in one of, what must be one of his last roles playing his boss at this insurance company um, Joel Grey from the the, uh, the uh, MC from Cabaret shows up at a, as his uh, immediate supervisor um, and it's it's you know he's 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 poking his nose and everything uh and and then there's anarchists running amok in the streets planting bombs everywhere and of course jeremy irons is trying to find out what's happened to a friend of his from work who's vanished mysteriously um 
while meanwhile getting caught up in the whole investigation into these murders and explosions. And, and of course, uh, it's named after Kafka. So, of course, paranoia is the major theme running throughout the film. Uh, you know, everyone wonders what happens in a mysterious castle that overlooks the city, where... Um, which I guess is the the seat of government, but also uh, secret police and, and mysterious goings on, and uh, you know it, it's a it's even I've, I've I've seen it three times now, and even then I have a hard time following the the, the labyrinthian thread of the plot as as uh, Irons gets deeper and deeper into this weird conspiracy. You know, it, it's got elements of Brazil in the way that the the bureaucracy works at this insurance company where he's employed. Um, we've got a fine bit with these two twin brothers who become his assistants who. Uh, are always like sneaking around and looking into people's desks and stealing things and and generally getting be, getting in the way, but somehow not getting punished for their weird misdeeds. Um, and it's it's uh, you know it's obviously a throwback to that era of of films like Fritz Lang's M and so on. You know, lots of Dutch angles and heavy shadows and some beautiful uh, black and white cinematography. I mean, that's that's always one of the things that directors will seem to want to do is when they get the chance, it's like, oh, I want to make a film in black and white. I mean, you know, Woody Allen did it with Love and uh, Shadows and Fog, rather. And, uh, you know, this seems to follow along with the same kind of impulse to uh, to make something, it is something. expressionistic yeah. and dark. And, and uh, you know, not easy to find. I don't think there's a DVD of it available. Um, you might be able to find it through more or, um, uh, well, you can find it on Laserdisc if you have something to play those on. They're kicking around. But uh, you might have to find it through more um, seditious means, uh, which seems to, which suits the material anyway, since there's all this involvement with anarchists and secret <laughs> communist plots and so on. But uh, really worth checking out. I mean, it, it, it's a fun watch, and it, because it is so involved and complicated, it's the kind of film that stands up to repeated viewings for sure. Mm-hmm. But it's just, it's just gorgeous to look at, let alone uh, enjoyable story-wise. Well, I haven't seen it yet, but I, it is certainly on my list. It's one of the few I haven't seen. I, I feel like our listeners would benefit from us uh, offering our suggestions for ones they might miss. Yes. Uh, now, I, I, <laughs> I have my list of my favorites, my five favorites, which I'm going to save for our last segment, I think. But uh, I do want to say that uh, along with his incredible energy as a director, he's also been a producer of a bunch of films like by George Clooney, for instance, Confessions of a Dangerous Mind, Good Night and Good Luck, Michael Clayton. They're all films worth seeing. He also found some time to be a second unit director on The Hunger Games, which I don't know how the hell that happened, but it did happen. Uh, now, of the films that I don't think people should rush out and see, I didn't particularly like his film Bubble from 2005. It left me kind of puzzled. It's a, a mystery, and it, he shot it with a, a bunch of, of basically uh, non-professional actors. Um, I didn't much like Full Frontal, which was also sort of weirdly shot uh, drama, comedy drama. I remember that Julia Roberts was in it, but otherwise not much of it has stayed with me. Um, I outright disliked The Good German, which felt like he wanted to make a Michael Curtiz-style post-war drama, but he also wanted to make it gritty and intense and uh, uh, basically very dark in a way that I don't think worked, despite the presence of Kate Blanchett, who was, you know, very good. Um, also, wondered, the girlfriend experience left my head sort of scratching. Uh, an experiment where he ca- cast porn star Sasha Gray as a, in a drama about an escort, um, 
And then, uh, and then the informant also is a is a Matt Damon uh, comedy, a, a sort of a dark comedy. Interesting character study, but otherwise it didn't really do much for me. Uh, and, and Damon is someone who shows up in cameos in a bunch of his films. He just he and Matt clearly have a thing. Damon also appears briefly in Unsane and. Uh, Geez, where else is he? He's just he shows up well, from time to time. The second Che Guevara film, uh, he shows up in the jungles of Bolivia, playing a, I guess, a missionary who encounters the guerrillas and they want his help, and he just agrees. Well, I won't do anything to harm you, but uh, you know, I can't condone right. You know, people with guns running right. around. I'm a missionary after all, kind of thing. And and it, you know, it's just one scene, but it's it's kind of funny to to see him turn up in this you know very gritty. Um, you know, historical drama where, yeah. where I can, I could see why he wouldn't use him as a main character. One of those, it would just kind of pull you out of it, but it's kind of fun to see mm-hmm. him turn up in a cameo. Um, yeah. The, the, it's funny how the, the, the filmography is littered with these kind of experiments. You mentioned bubble. Um, I watched uh, schizopolis, which I know does have a following. Okay. And uh, I believe was issued on DVD, at least by criteria. Yeah, you know, that's they, right. Yeah. They yeah. had a fondness for it. It's, uh, it's basically the, the film that he made after, uh, Basically, Kafka, King of the Hill, and his uh, film noir homage, a remake of the 1940s film Crisscross, um, uh, but an armored car heist, uh, those all kind of flopped. And uh, so he made Schizopolis basically entirely on his own um, with, a, you know, again, skeleton crew, no names in the cast, made for under 300 grand uh, around uh, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And, uh, you know, they just kind of settled in there and made this very quick. Um, very surreal kind of comedy where Soderbergh actually plays the, not only plays the lead, who's a guy who works for a um, Scientology-esque cult. He's like this speechwriter for the L. Ron Hubbard-esque leader of this uh, cult. Um, this very corporate kind of self-improvement cult, if you want to call it that. Um, but then he also plays his doppelganger, um, a dentist who's always wearing jogging outfits, even though he only jogs from the door to the car and back again. Um, <laughs> he plays this doppelganger dentist who's also having an affair with his first character's wife. and But then he starts impersonating the dentist, and then he learns that the wife is having an affair with the dentist, and he's basically having an affair with his own wife while pretending to be her <laughs> lover, the dentist. Uh-huh. And, and and there's, there's ongoing gags. Like, um, you know, initially his character and his wife they don't actually speak in dialogue. They speak in kind of like stage direction. Like he'll say feigned surprise and she'll say, Oh, expression of boredom. And then kind of, <laughs> okay. And then, and then, you know, and it's, and there wasn't even really a script when they started filming. I think they just kind of mapped out the scenes uh-huh. every day as they began. So it does have a kind of very loose feel, even though it's, it's got a very definite three act structure and there is kind of a story. Uh, it's, it's mostly just kind of screwing around for fun right. uh, on film. Um, his, his, uh, his character's soon to be ex-wife is played by his real life ex-wife just for a little bit of a extra kind of, uh, art imitating life. And, uh, and I'm trying to think of, there's really no recognizable names that I can think of in this film. There was one actor playing his kind of Weasley friend at work who I've seen in a few things. But aside from that, it's pretty much uh, amateur hour. And so it has that kind of middle, mid-level indie film sort of feeling. But because he is trying so many different things and, and playing around with the format and, and you know, having another character like this mad exterminator who's having affairs with all the housewives in town while he searches their house houses for bugs. Um, you know, and, and then they, they, they talk in weird non sequitur nonsense dialogue. Like they'll just say catchphrases and things, but you get the idea of what they're talking about 
through the inflection sort of thing. Um, so they're basically throwing everything at the wall, seeing if it'll stick. Uh, you know, I, I've encountered people who really love the film for its sheer oddness. Uh, and it's, it, it is worth seeing just to see him in an acting role where he kind of, you know, you think of him as being a serious artiste and here he is pulling faces and, and doing broad comedy uh-huh. and, and absurdist humor. Um, and I think this, the whole spirit of the Enterprise, I guess, is matched in the fact that one of the main characters, or uh, an important character who actually dies early on in the film, but that creates these ripples throughout the storyline, is named uh, um, Lester Richards as an, in an homage to the sort of absurdist comedic director uh, Dick Lester, Richard Lester, who made oh, yeah. A Hard Day's Night right. and um, and The Knack and How to Get It and and um, and, and you know also, also a couple of uh, Three Musketeers movies and a Superman movie, but uh, I think he's more inspired by the absurdist humor of his films, like How I Won the War with John Lennon and that sort of oh, thing. Okay, fair and enough. And his work with the goons. So, um, not an important film by any measure, but probably one of the better of his experimental films, uh, where he's just trying stuff out to try it out and, and have fun with it. So, Stephen, uh, as we wrap up, we we head towards the finish line of our. Uh, our Soderbergh uh, revival. Uh, so excited that he is back making feature films again after his his so-called retirement. Uh, Shea, which I remember seeing at the Oxford when they both films played there, and it was a really unusual thing for them to do, which program two feature films. Uh, basically, you know, it's a two-part uh, project for Soderbergh. I really enjoyed the first part, which of course was all about the revolution. Uh, the second part I liked less. Uh, it seemed less focused, but it was also, I mean, frankly, about his downfall and his struggles in Central America, and uh, and as a result, uh, you know, it's it's more of a downer. Uh, but I also remember he really. And maybe you can tell me if I'm wrong, but my memory of the film is there were a lot of wide shots or middle mid shots and very few close ups. He just he sort of kept us an arm's length from what was going on in the story. Um, but I mean, I still felt like I learned a lot about the character and about what was going on at the time. Yeah, the, well, the the first half is is in shot in Cuba, I guess, and and um, you know it was. I remember at the time it was a bit notorious because. Uh, it was the first major American production to shoot in Cuba, perhaps even defying certain um, restrictions that have been placed on Americans and right. to actually embargoes. Do any, embargoes <laughs> to do anything in Cuba. But um, they also shot a fair bit in Puerto Rico, I believe. Okay. But, but um, they actually did do some Cuban location shooting. And then, of course, the second part takes place entirely in Bolivia as uh, he tries and fails to foment revolution in uh, South America. And uh, yeah, the, the, the first film has the look of, I think he's borrowing from the playbook of kind of the epic war film to a certain degree, um, you know, things like Battle of the Bulge and so on. So it's uh-huh. shot in Panavision, uh, the, you know, the wider aspect ratio. And, and um, even though it's a lot of it's done with handheld and so on, it, it tries to have that kind of that epic look, you know, especially when, when battles are taking place and they're. They're, you know, sieging, besieging a town and so on. They even blow up a train uh, or derail a train. Because, you know, of course, every great epic has to have a train derailment in it, whether it's, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly or uh, Dr. Zhivago or what have you. Um, and so so that's that's where they spent a lot of the money, I guess, was on that one train scene, um, which is certainly impressive. Um, 
and then of course the second one is shot in a completely different aspect ratio to look more like a documentary especially uh, right. as we were saying earlier using that digital camera for um the more uh rugged and up close but you're you're, you're right it it, it uh, kind of keeps you at a little bit at arm's length um i, I don't know if that's because maybe soderbergh doesn't want to get too involved in the the sort of hagiography of 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 che guevara you know obviously an important historical figure a great leader and, and revolutionary but at the same time uh doesn't want to play into that whole um Shay's face on a t-shirt uh kind of um trap and and uh, overplay his uh his iconography uh which is you know these days he is what he's more remembered for than what he actually did and uh, his um you know his his exploits and 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 also his character flaws. You know there's, there's an, a tendency to elevate him to some sort of revolutionary sainthood. Um, you know, and I'm sure there are people wearing Che Guevara t-shirts and hats who have no clue what the man was about and, and what he did. So uh, I think I think the uh, the important thing for this film was to you know obviously make a film about a historical figure that there's a lot of interest in at the moment. You know, so it does have some commercial um, prospects, but at the same time maybe debunk some of the myths. Um, and uh, maybe do a proper warts and all kind of portrayal. And, of course, Benicio Del Toro's performance as Che Guevara, both uh, in his uh, revolutionary prime, securing uh, the freedom of the people of Cuba at the side of Fidel Castro, um, and uh, and also this downfall in Bolivia, where it just goes from one failure to another. Um, you know, that, that, that was really important, and Del Toro's performance is, is quite quite amazing throughout I, I i do remember that i remember del toro being really something yeah and that's that's really the main reason to, to see it i think yeah. um you know and, and he was the one you know it was on the set of traffic apparently he said you know he he said so i want to make a che guevara film and you're the guy to, to make it okay you know, you know he was so impressed by him on the, on the set of uh, traffic right and uh basically i don't i don't want to say bullied but <laughs> kind of coerced him into making <laughs> making this film and del toro is a, benicio del toro is also on board as a producer so obviously he's a key creative force behind right. the camera as well as in sure. front of it sure well that's great i traffic was uh, a terrific film i did not revisit for this discussion but i mean it's his oscar-winning film i'm sure most people have heard about it um i yeah i tried to steer a little bit clear we both have from his maybe more well-known work but he is a filmmaker who has been fortunate you know he he made a lot of films early in his career that not a lot of people saw but he still had the opportunity to keep making feature films until eventually he hit on a couple of really commercial films in the late 90s that really uh commercial and critically adored feature films now in my list of my favorite films uh from him my number five is sex lies and videotape which we have discussed uh my number four is haywire which we talked about on our our episode that uh, that spoke about um, female action fig- action heroes, and uh, I think Haywire is a, not only is it a terrific spy movie, but it also uh, you know it's one of his odd experiments that I think really works, which is he hired someone who is a mixed martial arts fighter who had very little acting experience. He put her in the center of the film, and he has her kicking the butts of a number of male actors, all of whom have a lot of experience, but also who have physical gifts, you know, the Channing Tatums, um, Michael Fassbender, uh, Ewan McGregor, all of whom are have worked in action films before, so can can certainly at least at least uh, pretend, you know, that they can match her skill. <laughs> yes. And uh, and Haywire is a whole lot of fun. If, if anyone hasn't seen that, uh, I'd really recommend it. Now, um, my number, uh, let's see, what was number four? 
Number th- my number three film is Solaris, which another film of his that not a lot of people saw, which is a real shame. I mean, uh, George, George Clooney is the lead. Uh, N- Natasha McElhone is, is the uh, female lead in the film. And it is, of course, uh, another adaptation of the famous uh, book, which uh, has been adapted before. But uh, this one is my, uh, you know, of science fiction from the early part of the century. It's one of my favorites. It's a lovely, thoughtful and quite sad drama about a man who uh, who gets brought up in it's a, it's it's a sci-fi it's set in the future and he gets brought to a, a space station that is revolving around a planet that may be may have consciousness but no one really knows what's going on down there on the surface of the planet up on the space station uh, people who are working in the station have seen people who are important to them who have died they have returned to them and that's exactly what happens with Clooney's character, his his wife, who uh, who seemed to have something happened to her in the past, uh, she reappears in front of him, and uh, it changes his whole perspective on the on the mission. Uh, what? How did you feel about it? You saw it for the first time recently. Yeah, I just saw this recently. I didn't see it when it came out, and uh, maybe because I had my doubts of you know about Steven Soderbergh having the nerve to remake a, a, a Andre Tarkovsky science fiction classic. Right. But but um, but I think by Focusing more on the original novel um, by Stanislaw Lem, uh, I think I think he comes up with a successful film. It's not really a remake of of the Tarkovsky film, right. more than a reinterpretation of the novel. And everybody it would, is it would is be terrific. a lot a lot shorter if it was that's uh, true <laughs> a remake of that film. Um, yeah, it's 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 very efficient filmmaking. It, it doesn't get so heavy into the whole metaphysic metaphysical aspect of of the story as the Tarkovsky one does, but it it is very effective in how it deals with issues of of memory and how we remember people and loved ones and and what would happen if someone was manifested based purely on our memories of them as opposed to how they truly were and 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 lived and. Uh, you know that that it's you know as, as someone who lost you know personally I lost somebody close to me early in my life, and I you know I was thinking constantly of like what would happen if if uh, somebody was brought back from the past, and, mm-hmm. but but based purely on 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 uh, what's in my own brain pan, and you know would that be terrifying or would that be a welcome thing or would it just be super creepy? And mm-hmm. this this film mobster super creepy, but but doesn't go for like the cheap thriller aspect of it i mean there there is danger implied in in what happens here and uh you know jeremy davies is great as kind of a creepy technician on board the satellite (laughs) yeah he's Um, so good (laughs) you know it's funny because i just seen him in uh, twin peaks the return he only has one scene i think in that as a as a um a a bookmaker trying to collect some money uh and he but you know he just has that creepy weasel roll down pats (laughs) and and here he's He's uh, he he plays that to the hilt in this film. Every time he comes into a room and he goes and it gets asked a question, he's like, uh, "Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> just, yeah, yeah." You know, there's a there's a comedic side to it, but also kind of like, a, "Oh, what's going on here?" Yeah, um, yeah. Aspect. And actually, Viola Davis, um, I guess in an earlier role of hers, is, is great uh, as someone who basically has to kind of be the figure of authority once uh, Clooney gets to the spaceship and starts freaking out. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, and Natasha McElhone plays a really interesting role in that she is someone, uh, she is her own person. She's brought back and then starts to understand the sort of existential uh, grief of her character, that she is not who she 
she's not the person who she is supposed to be and without saying too much about more about that uh but it's a very fine line she has to walk as a performer and i think she does a terrific job with it so i you know i'm bringing back to soderbergh i guess how he is able to rein in all these ideas um while keeping the story moving and keeping it a very very brisk it's what an hour and 40 minutes or something like that it's uh, it's very well contained. Um, you know, speaks to his uh, strengths as a director, writer, editor, <laughs> and uh, cinematographer. You know, considering he tries to take on most of the jobs himself, uh, and maybe that helps him keep these films very concise and very on point. But uh, but but here it really does work uh, fantastically. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now I only have two more films on my list. I think you've probably seen both of them. I think so. Uh, I think I know what they're, the, what's coming up. <laughs> my number two uh, Soderbergh pick is The Limey from 1999. Um, this is also a very concise hour and a half, the, a film that uh, casts a Terrence Stamp as a, uh, a cockney gangster who's just out of jail, finds that his young daughter, she is has died in California. And so he flies to Los Angeles to find out what happens happen and she and he's convinced that her older boyfriend played by peter fonda with the great character named terry valentine uh, had something to do with it now uh he also finds louis guzman to uh sort of show him around but uh, but yeah uh the the peter fonda character has sort of a, a muscle played by barry newman and I just think that the casting here really says a lot. You've got the, you've got Terrence Stamp, who was such a big name in British cinema in the late '60s, and then you've got Barry Newman, Peter Fonda, who were such big names in American cinema in the late '60s and early '70s. And so there's this feeling of nostalgia just by having them in the film. But this this context is very very different. The this is a, a carrying on in some ways. Uh, it's like the it's like the 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 60s, everything that went wrong with the 60s encompassed in the late 90s with these these older men having to deal with their mistakes. And uh, even Terrence Stamp's character as well has regrets, uh, which are, I mean, the way Soderbergh shoots this film, uh, intercutting from the past and present, overlaying imagery and then dialogue is fascinating. I love the way he constructs the film and he makes what is a pretty straightforward, simple story much more complex with the way he shoots and edits it. And then he uses actual footage of Stamp from an earlier film. I think Poor Cow. Poor Cow, yeah, Ken Loach film. Ken Loach film from the uh, from the sixties. He uses in the film, and he has uh, Terrence Stamp talking talking over it, talking about a memory he had of his daughter when his daughter was young. And it's so potent to see the young Stamp in this film, uh, in in this context. Of course, if you didn't know necessarily that uh, this was from an earlier film, I mean it it. I just thought it was so cleverly done, this flashback. Like, okay, we're going to take this this actor, this character actor, and use some of his earlier work as a flashback. Is It's amazing. And I, I mean, overall, I love the film. It's a, it's a gritty, uh, it's a kind of a gangster drama, but it has the whole familial warmth to it and, and that uh, elements of aging, talking about aging in a way that gives it much more depth and much more interest than a usual genre film would have. Yeah, and the whole idea of bringing that British kitchen sink gangster drama Drama to Los Angeles is, is such a, a great conceit, and that's just what makes it really snap. And it's also uh, a collaboration with uh, screenwriter Lem Dobbs, who's worked uh, with uh, Soderbergh. He wrote Kafka 
and he wrote uh, Haywire. And um, you know, the, I think there's only like a handful of films they've done together, but clearly that's a collaboration that, that yeah. works every time. Yeah, for sure. Um, the last film on my list is Out of Sight from uh, 1998. Uh, it is an adaptation of the Elmore Leonard novel uh, with screenwriter Scott Frank. And I can't think of a more entertaining, enjoyable film in some ways. It just, it works on every level. It's a, uh, it's a comedy, an action film, a thriller. Uh, it features George Clooney as uh, Jack Foley, a really a bank robber who just can't get it right. Keeps getting thrown into prison. Eventually, he breaks out with his buddy. Is Ving Rhames played uh, plays his friend, his buddy, buddy, and uh, and then he's he's basically pursued by Jennifer Lopez's Karen Sisko, the great role for Jennifer Lopez. I mean, that's not maybe not saying too much because her career hasn't been like awesome in in the big screen. I, I can't think of too many other roles that I really love her in. But here she is so good. And she and Clooney have the kind of chemistry that you just don't see that often in modern uh, films. Like this, it feels like that sort of like uh, uh, Hepburn Tracy kind of chemistry, just sizzles every scene they're in together and it makes you wish that they had just kept making movies together because i would love to see them keep working it's funny i think there has been talk of bringing these characters back at some point down the road but uh i don't know the novels well enough to know if those characters reappear Um, yeah i don't either but uh oddly enough a character does reappear uh michael keaton right shows up in out of sight playing the same character he played in another elmore leonard adaptation quentin tarantino's jackie brown so right. it's not as you know so it's, it's just i love the fact that those two films are interconnected by this one character who, who basically links up these two universes uh the elmore leonard books are like that where a major character in one film will show up in as a minor character in another and i love that they kept that uh, element of his work in these films mm-hmm. yeah and there's a there's a, a scene where after much uh, cat and mouse games uh they finally meet uh in in a hotel bar in detroit uh, with the snow falling outside the window. Uh, this is uh, George Clooney and uh, Jennifer Lopez characters, and they have uh, a wonderful uh, exchange, the two of them, and then, uh, you know, repair to the hotel room. And it's just, it's it's amazing. The style, it, everything is working. And uh, I also want to give a shout-out here to some of the other ca- characters, actors in it, uh, Steve Zahn, uh, Don Cheadle, and uh, Catherine Keener, Dennis Farina as... Uh, as uh, Marshall Cisco is awesome, and uh, and Albert Brooks. Oh, and Louis Guzman again as well as in it. But Albert Brooks uh, yes. is amazing as the uh, as the guy wearing the, with the hairpiece. He's got all the the diamonds stashed away. Uh, he was uh, he was in prison for a white collar crime, and that's where uh, where he you know he began to. Uh, the, the, he, unfortunately, he spoke you know where he shouldn't have, and then after he gets out, that's when the uh, his former uh, the ex cons come after him. Um, anyway, yeah, this is uh, this is a great film, and if you haven't seen Out of Sight, then watch it three or four times because you really you deserve to do that. It'll be you'll love it. And that's been Lends Me Your Ears for another episode where we've been talking about Steven Soderbergh and his very interesting filmography. My name is Karsten Knox, and uh, you can find me on Twitter uh, under the name of my blog, which is Flaw in the Iris. And I'm on Twitter at, at 
NS underscore S-C-O-O-K-E. Uh, and uh, we're also available at Lends Me Your Ears on Facebook and on Twitter at Lends Me Your Ears. Um, if you are feeling uh, generous and, uh, and flush, please feel free to visit our Patreon account and show us, throw us some shekels. We would appreciate that. Uh, many, many thanks to uh, Village Soundcast Network for producing the Lends Me Your Ears podcast and CKDU for allowing us to record in their studios and, and play our show every second Tuesday at 5.30. And thanks to you, Stephen, for, uh, you know, keeping at this. I really appreciate it. (laughs) Always a fun time. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production. 